to turn to Revelation chapter 16 this morning. Revelation chapter 16. I'm sure you can still visualize the damage that was done in 1989, the earthquake in San Francisco. There were overpasses that had collapsed, cars crushed, buildings that were destroyed, people injured and devastated. The earthquake measured 6.9 on the Richter scale and lasted about 10 to 15 seconds. 3,700 people were injured. 63 people were killed. But that, that earthquake doesn't really compare to the largest recorded earthquake in history, which took place in Chile in 1960 off the coast of uh, the Pacific. The quake measured 9.5, and it set off several subsequent events, flooding, landslides, tsunami, volcanic eruption. And it was reported to have killed, not 63 like in San Francisco, but 5,000 people. And if that quake had happened in our day, it would have caused damages of approximately $5 billion. Just a devastating earthquake. Now, I've never really experienced an earthquake, at least of any significance, but I can't think of anything that would make me feel more vulnerable as an earthquake. To feel completely helpless as the earth is shaking. There's no amount of human ingenuity or power that can provide an earthquake stabilizer as if we can stop the earth from shaking. And so we feel vulnerable in times like that. But those quakes that I just mentioned really do not even hold a candle to the earthquake that will come with the final bowl judgment at the end of time. Revelation chapter 16. That will be part of what we read here in the seventh bold judgment, but we actually are going to look at the sixth bold judgment as well. So let me turn your attention to verse 12, and we'll read from verses 12 through 21. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was an earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be on the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. It's clear from this passage that God's wrath will be poured out 
on the earth in full measure. We see uh, phrases like, as has never happened since the time that the earth came into being. We see that it's going to be an unprecedented pouring out of God's judgment upon the earth. We, what we have here in this passage is the final two bowls of God's judgment. We looked last week at the first five bowls of God's judgment in verses 1 through 11. We'll, I'll mention some of those briefly as we, as we move through. But the sixth bowl starts in verse 12 and goes through verse 16. And then the seventh bowl starts in verse 17 and goes to the end of the chapter. And the seventh bowl actually continues on, and I'll explain how that works with uh, chapter 19. But at this point, we just need to look at these first or these last two bowls, the sixth and the seventh bowls of God's wrath. So let's look at the sixth bowl there in verses 12 through 16. And that is that it's poured out on the great river. The object of God's wrath is this great river, which is known as the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River begins at the northeast end of Israel and it it, uh, empties southwest into the Persian Gulf. So it actually goes farther west from Israel. It doesn't actually come into Israel. Um, And notice the purpose of this sixth plague. That it, it is dried up. It dries up the river. The end of the verse says, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So the the plague that comes on the earth is this river is dried up completely. One that normally would require great effort to cross. And now it's going to be dried up so that it makes way for the kings of the east to come over to Israel. And we'll see why that's important here in just a second. The kings of the east at the end of verse 12 probably include some of the larger countries that will be around during that time with with large uh, military forces, perhaps China, Japan, India, many other of these eastern nations. Um, but, But why do they need their way prepared? Why can't they just make their way across over to Israel? Verses 13 to 16 tell us how they, how they uh, are convinced to come over. 13 through 14 tell us that. And then verse 16 tells us why they are coming. Alright, so let's look at verses 13 and 14 to see how they are persuaded to come. Verse 13 reads, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 13 tells us that out of the mouths of the dragon, which is whom? Satan. And then the beast, which is whom? Okay, no, that's, uh, that's the Antichrist. And then the false prophet is the third one that's mentioned. So you have all three members of what's known, or what are known as the unholy trinity. And out of their mouths come these uh, creatures like frogs. They're actually evil spirits, verse 14 tells us. Unclean spirits, verse, the end of verse 13. Verse 14 says they're the spirit of demons. And the purpose of these frogs, these uh, demonic creatures that come from their mouths, is to persuade the kings of the east to join up and come to Armageddon. Look at verse 14 at the end. It says, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. So, so, the, so they don't intend, let's say, on their own, they don't intend to come over and make war with God or with Israel. But these demons come and they, they, uh, they persuade them. 
through de- demonic means to come across. And uh, the method of persuasion that they use is, notice verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs or miracles. They perform signs. And so now they, they show that, that they are uh, of great power and that they should follow them back to Israel, to Armageddon, to the Mount Megiddo where this great battle will be against God and His forces. And what the, the point of the plague there in verse 12 is that the river is now dried up from where the kings of the east are going to be coming from. They're going to have to come across that river. And in order to bring large amounts of military forces across that river, it would have required a great amount of effort. Remember, there's been some great devastation on the world up until this time. Uh, Think back with me to the first five plagues that we looked at last week, the first five bowl judgments. There were painful sores on every person that had the mark of the beast. So every single person on the world except in the world except for those who were believers. They had painful sores. And remember, they cursed God or or, or blasphemed God because of these sores. Um, but not only that, there was this water that had turned to blood. And so it made it hard to find sources of drinking water. It wasn't just the seas that turned into blood. It was the, the springs of waters, the wells. They all turned to blood. And so drinking water was going to be hard to come by. In the fourth plague, you had the fierce heat from the sun. And then the fifth plague, you had darkness. Alright, so with all these plagues, think about all the long-term effects that would come as a result of those first five plagues. It would make it difficult for these troops to come across. There would be a great drought because of the fierce heat. And so it would be difficult to get food and water. And, and these people would be plagued with these sores and perhaps some of them scorched from the sun, or perhaps many of them scorched from the sun. And so the kings of the the east would have been, we could say, vulnerable or uh, not at their strongest. uh, The military of the east, they would not be too powerful at this time. And so that's why they need convincing. They are, uh, it's as if they're in an infirmary. They're trying to recover from all these plagues they've already had come upon them. And and, and what the Antichrist wants to happen, what Satan wants to happen, is for them to come over and join into this battle. And for that reason, they need convincing. And so Satan uses his demonic influence through these frog-like creatures, frog-like demons, to influence these kings of the East to come across. And uh, it's not only the kings of the East. Look at verse 14 again. Okay, In verse 12 it says, so so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. But verse 14 says, which go out to the kings of the whole world. So it seems as if what Satan is doing here is he's bringing in all the military troops of the entire world to be a part of this battle. Now notice where they are going. Verse 16. And they gathered them together, that is the demons, the demonic creatures there, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon, or Armageddon, or Mount Megiddo. Mount Megiddo, Har means mount, by the way, in Hebrew. So, Mount Megiddo. It's near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the northeast part of Israel. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the northwest part of Israel. 
It's not technically a mountain, rather it's more uh, a series of hills, so we call it hill country, um, surrounded by a great amount of plains. But remember, you're going to have all the, the troops of the world come together against Jerusalem, and so it's going to require a large area to, to accommodate all these people, and, um, and the land of Israel would be full of people who are opposing these, uh, this last stronghold of believers who will not get the mark of the beast. For some reason, they're holding out, even though it's detrimental to their health. Many of them are killed from the statue, the, the Antichrist statue, the image of him. And others are, uh, are tortured and imprisoned because of, uh, because of their faith. And so that we have this last stronghold that's likely in the area of Jerusalem. And, and now you have all these troops gathering around Jerusalem for this final battle. This battle would probably stretch about 100 miles wide and 200 miles north, fill up the entire country of Israel with Jerusalem being at the center. So the kings of the east and the kings of the rest of the world believe the demons and they come in battle across this dried up Euphrates River. They're able to make it across and, uh, and they are there to, to go up against these believers who have opposed the Antichrist. Um, and although uh, that is the way it looks from their perspective that, that this is the final stronghold uh, of people on the earth that are rejecting the Antichrist, really these people on the earth, the, the troops that are fighting against God, they're the really stronghold. They're the ones who are still opposing the God of the universe. And this is God's last group of people that are going to be opposing Him, uh, at least until the, the kingdom comes. So they come in order to take out this group of believers. That's the sixth bold judgment. God dries up the Euphrates River with His power, and the, the kings of the east and the rest of the world apparently come to Israel to fight. The seventh bowl is, is shown for us in verses 17 through 21. This is the final bowl of God's wrath. Um, first, we need to see God's power in this in verse 18. Now let's, let's start with verse 17 just so we can see the context there. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. So God here is pictured with flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder as He often is in the Scriptures. What this is suggesting is that this is a preliminary or a, uh, a picture of God coming to the earth. Listen to Exodus 19.16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled talking about when Moses was at Mount Sinai. There's loud thunder and lightning showing that God's presence is there at the top of the mountain with Moses. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth from among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. This is a picture of God's throne and around it is lightning and thunder. You see, when God comes, 
When His special presence comes to the earth, He comes with a grand entrance. Do you remember how God approached Job in chapter 38 and 40? Did He come and, and sneak up to Him around a corner and say, Hey, Job, it's me. No, He came with thunder and a whirlwind, a storm. I am God. Job, let me talk to you about who I am. God is powerful and He comes in power. Psalm 18.12-15 through 15 says, From the brightness before Him passed His thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered them and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. And then the channels of water appeared and the foundation of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. Okay, so when God is pictured in His special presence, He's often pictured with thunder and lightning. In fact, turn back to chapter 4, verse 5. Because when, when John describes God here on His throne, high and lifted up, he describes Him as being surrounded by lightning and thunder. <clears throat> Verse 4 reads, Around the throne, speaking of God's throne, were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And he goes on to describe some of the other things that he sees. But what we see there is that God's throne... Out from His throne come flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. He is God. He is powerful. Turn to chapter 11. You see this again when the temple is opened. John gets a window into the temple of God. The very, the very location of God's special presence. Verse 19, And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Alright, so turn back to chapter 16. Because in verse 18, what's being talked about here is God coming in thunder. Specifically, this thunder is a preliminary to the King of Kings coming to the earth. That is the Son. God the Son coming to the earth. He is literally going to come to the earth and, and it's preceded by this great thunder and lightning that will be, I believe, unprecedented. It will be combined with an earthquake at the end of verse 18. This is uh, much worse than that Chilean earthquake in 1960 measuring 9.5 on the Richter scale. This one will be much worse. At the end of verse 18 it says, And there was a great earthquake such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and mighty. This earthquake will be unprecedented in human history. And notice how devastating it will be. Verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Now, what is this great city that's being talked about here? What is John talking about? Well, I think if we look at the, the rest of the verse, verse 19... It says, and the cities of the nations fell. So the contrast here is between the great city and the cities of the nations. Or if you look in your, the margin of your Bible under verse 19, it should say Gentiles. That's because the Greek word for nations can also be translated as Gentiles. 
And so I think that's the point here, that that the cities of the Gentiles fell. So what would the great city be referring to? Jerusalem, right? So it's in contrast that the great city was split into three parts and the rest of the nations of the Gentiles fell. Um, And this seems to coincide with the Lord's return, that He will return to the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 through 5. That Christ will come down and He apparently will be the one who causes this earthquake. That as He steps down this mountain, this mountain will split into three parts. It will change the topography of Israel. So that it will be, instead of more mountainous and hilly, it will be more flat and, and, uh, and level. There will still be some hills and things like that. Um, and the, the locations will probably still have some of the same names that we know them as but it will be uh, more spread out. It will be flattened because of this great earthquake. Look at the end of verse 19. It says, Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of His fierce wrath. This is where John introduces this wicked city, Babylon, that is the center of what Satan is doing. And instead of thinking of it as a literal city, which I believe it does have a literalness to it, that there is going to be a literal city, probably some sort of Roman Empire type city because the Roman Empire will be back into play at the end of the tribulation. But it actually is the epitome of what the rest of the world system is like, what it's like in Babylon. If you think of Babylon in history, um, Babylon started as a place where they defied God. They didn't want to spread out throughout the whole world like they were told. And so they tried to build a city to God to become one people. And God said, no, that's not going to happen. And so he confused the languages there. We know it as the Tower of Babel, but that word actually can be translated as the Tower of Babylon. And uh, so we'll talk about that the next two weeks because chapter 17 and 18 shows the futility of the city, Babylon, and how it quickly comes to an end with God's wrath. Okay, So we'll look at that in the next two weeks. I'll explain more about what John is talking about with Babylon the Great. Um, notice further in verse 20, And every island fled away. This is further effects of the earthquake. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. That is, that they were leveled. Okay, islands are, are sinking into the sea, perhaps with all the leveling of the, of the mountains, all the, uh, the land that comes and fills up some of the sea that raises the water levels, and all the islands are starting to flee away. They're no more. The coastlines are coming in and, and filling up uh, the earth, perhaps in some places, but, but the point is that the mountain, the, the topography will be different than what it is now. And then, verse 21, we see that there will be the worst, not only the worst earthquake ever, but also the worst hailstorm ever. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. This is similar to the seventh Egyptian plague. If you remember from last week, when we looked at those first five plagues, almost every single one of them pointed back to something that had happened uh, in Egypt when Israel was being removed from that place to show Pharaoh that God alone is God and that He must be worshipped. And and this plague is no different. The seventh plague points back to what happened in Egypt, the seventh Egyptian plague, Exodus 9. 
verses 23 and 24. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. And then listen to this. So there was hail and fire flashing continuing in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. When that hailstorm came on Egypt, the meteorologists were saying at that time, this was the worst hailstorm ever because it was in Egypt. But this hailstorm will be worse than all the worst hailstorms in the entire world because it will have hailstones that are, notice verse 21, 100 pounds each. Now, um, I think the, the, we could think of this from a, um, a weather perspective. Why the, why, how could this possibly happen? Uh, because God in some way uh, works in miracles during His time of wrath here at the end of the judgments, but He also works in providential ways. Um, so in this case, what's happening, remember, you have this fierce heat that's coming on the earth, and so lots of the water is evaporating up into the sky and, and, and allowing for large pockets of uh, evaporated liquid, basically, to be hanging up there in the clouds. And now this huge thunderstorm comes and drops these large hailstones, these, these humongous hailstones on the earth. Now, how could this possibly be? A hundred pound hailstones. The largest recorded hail uh, stone in the U.S. was 1.67 pounds in Coffeyville, Kansas, September 3, 1970. But there are actually bigger hailstones than that in Bangladesh in April of 1986. 2.25 pounds where 92 people were killed from this hailstorm. But this one here in verse 21 will be much worse. It will be about 45 times, the the hailstones will be 45 times the size of these 2.25 pound hailstones in Bangladesh. Uh, Based on the... Uh, some studies that people have done, a 100-pound hailstone would be about 17.6 inches in diameter. Okay, so about the size of a beach ball would be each one of these hailstones. And people will not be, many people will not be able to survive this hailstorm. It would do great damage not only on people, but on whatever crops are remaining, you can imagine. It will do great damage on buildings, uh, people perhaps will be living in caves and underground. It's hard to know exactly where they will flee to during a time like this. And so we have we have this thunder, this lightning, this worst earthquake ever, the worst hailstorm ever. And notice the end of verse 21, surprisingly. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe despite the fact that they clearly know that it is from the God of the universe that this earthquake takes place and this hailstorm takes place, they still fail to repent. They blaspheme God's name. So there are people who still survive this. And this is not surprising because in verse 9, we read that that men who are scorched with the fierce heat in the fourth plague, that they blaspheme the name of God who is the, has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give Him glory. And then in verse 11, after the, the darkness comes, they blaspheme the name of God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent. And we see this again in the seventh plague. 
they see clearly that the hailstones come from God in heaven. And they still blaspheme God's name and fail to repent. Now, this is not the end of the seventh bold judgment. Included in the seventh bold judgment is actually that battle that I was just talking about where the kings of the whole world will be gathered to Israel. That battle will actually be further explained beginning in chapter 19, verse 11. So we'll have to wait until we get there to find out how this seventh plague uh, uh, ends. But what John does now in chapter 17 through 19.10 is he explains what happens, what, what has happened to these nations of the world, this Babylon the Great. And so we'll take some time to look at that over the next couple of weeks. And uh, we've already, I've already mentioned uh, what, what exactly will happen after this hailstorm, that the remaining troops that are there in Israel will come into battle against Jerusalem, against the King of Kings, Jesus the Christ, and, uh, and He will destroy them as we will read in chapter 19. Notice I skipped over verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now I alluded to the fact that this is God who, who comes with flashes of lightning and peals of thunder in verse 18. But the reason I know that this is God is because it says in verse 17, a loud voice came out of the temple. And as I noted last week, there's only one being that's in the temple at this time. And we know that from chapter 15, verse 8. Turn there with me. Chapter 15, verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels we're finished. Okay, so we know that this is God the Father. He's the only being inside the temple at this time. No one else is able to enter. All the, all the angels leave. They have their bowls of wrath. They leave and no one else is able to come in while God is carrying out His judgment on the people. And so this is, um, this is God's way of saying, notice what He says there in verse 17 of chapter 16, it is done. God's saying, when this seventh bowl is finally poured out in full measure, that'll be it. It's finished. It's over. My wrath is satisfied. And um, so that should give us hope as believers. But there's further hope for us in verse 15. And I believe that this was written for us, uh, that is, as people of Christ's church. Verse 15 reads, and it's in a parenthetical statement, that comes in the middle of explaining what's going on in the sixth bowl. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Okay, so who is speaking here? The, the text is not very clear as to who is speaking, but I think if we look at the larger context of Revelation, we can get an answer to that. Okay, so look at the first part of that verse again. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Okay, keep that in your mind and turn back to chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, because this phrase, I am coming like a thief, is only used, uh, is only said by one person in the, entire Christ, in, in, in the entire Scriptures. Chapter 3, and uh, we'll begin with verse 2. Jesus is talking to 
uh, the church at Sardis. He's sending a message through John. This is what I want you to say to them. And he says in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Okay, so Jesus here is talking in chapter 3 to the church at Sardis. And He is the only person who uses this phrase, I am coming like a thief. And so, based on that understanding and on what I'm going to show you in just a second, I believe this is Jesus talking in chapter 16. Now, hold your place in chapter 3. I wanted to show you the next part. Turn back to chapter 16. Show you the next part of the verse and and how it corresponds to what He had said earlier. Okay, so He starts with, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. We said that that's Jesus. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Okay, so turn now back to chapter 3, verse 18. Notice what he says to the church at Laodicea. Okay, they were lukewarm. He said he wanted to spit them out of his mouth because they were of no use. They were neither hot for medicinal purposes nor cold for drinking purposes. And so I want to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what Jesus is saying here is that um, that uh, that they were guilty of participating in religious activities blindly. That in reality they were blinded and naked. They didn't have the clothes of Christ's righteousness like they thought they did. They had said, uh, "I am rich," verse 17, and I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, "No, but you're not rich. You're poor." You're blind. You're naked. And you need to put this clothing on. You need to buy this clothing from Me. In other words, don't be like that tepid water that's of no use. You need to be uh, seeking and pursuing after true riches. And that's not what you're doing right now. Because when I return, I want to find you clothed. Because if you're not clothed, it will be clear that you never accepted Me. And you do have need of something, you see. They were the exact opposite of what they thought they were. And what I want you to notice about this, and the reason I say that this message in chapter 16 is for us, is because notice at the end, look at verse 6 of chapter 3, because that message to Sardis, okay, that, that I am coming like a thief, is for us as well. Verse 6 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This was not just designed for Sardis. At the end of the message to the Laodiceans, verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's including all the churches that would exist following John's writing. That this message is from Jesus Christ to all the churches. And so what He's telling to us here in chapter 16, or or what He's telling to these churches, turn back there to chapter 16, I think is applicable for all churches, is designed for all churches, including ours. Verse 15 reads, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. 
Here's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, my return is real. I will come when people don't expect it. So you need to be ready. Like when you are waiting for the, uh, the, the utility guy to come to your house because he has to fix something. Now you've got to just be ready all the time. You have to have your house in order. Or for, for a homeowner who's waiting for a burglar to come. That's the imagery that Jesus uses. What do you have to do if you're a homeowner? You, you have to always be prepared so that you at any instant can, can be ready when he walks through the door. And Jesus says, that's the way I'm coming. So be ready. This is a call to genuine faith. Don't, don't take these things lightly. Hey, that's going to happen sometime in the future. I'm not going to be here. I don't have to worry about that. Jesus says, get ready now. Because when I come, it will be too late. You need to have your clothes on now. It's like the parable of the virgins who had to have their, their candles trimmed and burning brightly. Some of them did and others did not. And when the, the bridegroom came, then, then, then uh, they were all ready and all the others who didn't have their candles trimmed and burning bright, they asked the other ones, well, let me have some of your oil. Let me Get me lit up here. I want to be ready. And, and they said, I'm sorry. We've already been called. We have to go. It'll be too late. And so this is a call here in the middle of such devastating judgment as you picture these events, what you should think about is that Christ is calling you in the middle of these things to be prepared. Be prepared now. Don't wait for God's judgment to begin. Be prepared now. It is utterly amazing how God works to accomplish His purposes. That God is orchestrating all of these events that He is somehow using even the evil acts of men to accomplish His purposes so that all will be drawn to this final battle and He will finally reign supreme in a clear way to all people in the universe. And so the message of this passage for us is twofold. Number one, be encouraged. Be encouraged because the God of peace, as Paul says in Romans chapter 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his actually he says under your feet that we will be a part of the judgment that comes upon Satan and what Paul is saying is there what Paul is saying there is it's only a matter of time it's soon going to happen so be ready for that make sure that you're you're ready and that you're encouraged you see right now creation is groaning because of its bondage to decay but it won't groan much longer all the frustrations, the, the pain, the sickness, the death that's going on right now will not continue forever. And it will come to an end. And so be encouraged that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then secondly, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Be like that homeowner who's waiting for the thief to come. Ready. Guard yourselves against the dangers of evil. evil. That means that we, need, we must be sober. That we must be ready. That we must resolve to obey God in all things. And the way that, that we primarily protect ourselves against Satan and his forces is through prayer. I've mentioned this several times as we've gone through Revelation, but I, I think it helps to remind us again 
that we need to be watching and praying so that we will not fall into temptation. Matthew 26.41 Because the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you want to be standing in the day of evil, if you want to stand up despite the evil all around you today, and you need to be praying for your soul. You need to be praying for the souls of the people in this church. That, that, that God would protect them. That God would, would keep them from evil. That He would keep them from temptation. That when temptation comes, they would be able to overcome it. And I'm telling you, that only happens through prayer. We're not strong enough to stand up to temptation apart from prayer. Without Christ, we can do nothing. And so we have to depend on God. And if you're not praying for your soul every day, for you to be protected against the temptations that will come in a given day, then you are not ready. And you will quickly and easily fall when temptation comes. Now, just because you pray doesn't mean you're guaranteed that you'll never fall into temptation again. If you think you're standing firm in that way, then be careful you don't fall. But Jesus is clear. You want to be guarded against temptation? You lean on God as hard as you can. Depend upon Him through prayer. Be encouraged that God will soon end all of this evil. And be on the alert. Because Satan is wanting to sift you like wheat. But if God is for us, then who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the encouragement that You give to us even in spite of the judgment. And uh, as we saw last week, even because of Your judgment, we see You as holy and true, as righteous in all of Your ways. And uh, while it's not completely clear to us how Your judgment actually makes You look more holy, it it makes us see You as more holy, we will see that clearly one day. When we shed this body and mind of sin and are able to see You in a glorious light and we're able to enjoy Your presence forevermore, we long for that day and we ask for Christ's soon return. Certainly, we don't want to have Him return with each of us not being ready. So I pray for each person in this room, for myself as well, that we would be pursuing You on a daily basis, that each of us would have turned to Jesus Christ in saving faith, and that we would be praying for one another. And we certainly don't want Christ to return without uh, the people in this world, particularly the ones within our circles of influence, without uh, them coming to a saving knowledge of Christ as well. And so we ask that You would use us, that from the time from now until the time when Christ returns, that we would be proclaiming the message of Him and that we would be sharing with our mouths and with our testimony of life that, that He is the true and living King and that there is no other like You. We pray that, that You would do the impossible as You did in our hearts. That You would turn us, turn them from darkness into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. What a great thing that would be to, to uh, enjoy on this earth, see people come to know Jesus Christ as a result of You working through us. May we depend upon You wholly as we walk through this life and, be, and not be found naked, but, but clothed in Your righteousness, in Christ's righteousness. We pray in His name. Amen.